0: I reckon waiting for the bill in a restaurant at the end of the meal is such a pain. I know, but have you seen Mr. Yum Split and Pay? I used it the other day at a restaurant, I just scanned the bill and straight away was able to easily split it with friends, pay and leave. It was super fast and super easy. It really sounds amazing. That's right, Mr. Yum Split and Pay makes it so simple for diners to pay their bill, to split it between a group, and even pay for individual items. Restaurants love it as they get to know their customers better than ever, making it simple to send targeted offers and get their guests coming back again and again. It really is a game changer for venues that love full service but want to streamline payments. Mr. Yum's split and pay is the better way to pay and it's free until July 2023. Visit MrYum.com. welcome to another principle of hospitality podcast i'm your host as always sean devries thanks so much for tuning in to another episode now food brings people together and promotes community and principle of hospitality is here to disrupt the current perceptions of what the hospitality industry can achieve in today's ever evolving and challenging environment so that's why we're so proud to partner with chef's hat the largest family owned and operated hospitality supplier in australia on this season of po now Hobiki is one of the most inspiring Japanese-influenced cafes in Melbourne. A large part of the menu of this Japanese-style brunch spot is based on the owner and next guest, Reggie's mum's cooking. Eviki, which is Japanese for sound or echo, comes through in every element of the venue and even the website with their awesome music sitting front and center of the brand experience. So it's awesome to sit down with Reggie on it today. How are you, man? Good, how are you? (laughs) Absolutely fantastic to have you on Um, and it was good to catch up, now we caught caught up sort of casually a couple of times now, but come down to the venue uh, a couple of weeks ago and see it in action. Um, I'd heard so much about it, I'd lived close um, to the venue for such a long time but haven't gone in and it was just awesome to see... Something that was different and something that was unique in Melbourne, obviously Japanese cafes is something that's pretty bespoke in Melbourne but is just centrally really, really important for the culture here. How did you get into it? How did how did you get into the industry? How did you get up with the uh, – how did you start the idea for a Ibiki?
1: The whole hospitality industry uh, – sorry, experience for myself started when I was, I'd say, 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. So I started really young and it was a good old classic Glory Jeans kind of uh, role <laughs> – we know we can look back and laugh at it, but um, that actually was definitely one of the most important experiences mm. um, in learning, you know, what to do, what not to do, what it's like to work in a franchisee versus like an independent. Yeah, so obviously I learned all the, the pillars, the essentials of service, the speed, the you know, wastage or anything like that, all the sure. main um, ideals of running a successful totality yeah. side. So, um, yeah, so overall... You know, I started off as a barista, I guess. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, it was quick. Just get it done. Quality wasn't essential at the at the time, right? It was, it was more, more about, about speed. speed yeah. yeah. So that's something that I learned really well. So that was about three years, I'd say, three to four years wow. um, overall. So got to a supervisor position, took on some more responsibility, of course. And then that was um, in New South Wales at the time where I used to live. Okay. And then I came to Melbourne for William Anglis Institute. I did a bachelor's in tourism and hospitality management. W- why hospitality, I guess, like during that progress, it was definitely school wasn't my forte, to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, education wise, like I wasn't the most academic, I was more on a creative side of things. And it just having done Gloria Jeans and, you know, I, I kind of did really well at it. I figured I may as well pursue this and see how it goes. So yeah, Willie Mangus was a, a good, I guess, academic side of things, you know, you quite a good relevant subjects. Um, learned a few from the lecturers and the teachers, mm-hmm. but I guess most of my experience was definitely done on site, um, at the cafes in the kitchen mm-hmm. overall. But, um, yeah, so glory jeans was a nice little spell. And then I decided to go into Italian family restaurant as like a good old waiter bar Just wow. wanted to see what that was like. <laughs> yes, <laughs> And, oh, that was a definitely an experience as well in terms of, um, how different the independent side of things were more, I guess, unorganised. You could say less systems and those kind of things. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Like, and back then, this was like close to ten years ago. It was cash basis. So, like, yes. you know, as we know, it was. And uh, I remember getting paid something very tragic to even you know air on here. <laughs> but, yeah, um, absolutely. But that was back then when it was more like you know you got to do what you got to do. It's a job. You know, there wasn't any of this like award system rates or anything like that. So yeah, you know, it didn't really phase me at the time. I just got experience out of it. But there was, I learned a lot of things not to do if I ever wanted to pursue my own um, business. I guess I went into the independent cafe scene. So this was, I guess, the changing where I learned the good side of hospitality, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was um at a small little uh, boutique cafe in Ashwood called Hide and Seek. Really small, um, like a little local cafe. My owner at the time, his name is Samir. He's, he's essentially now my guru. The guy I go back to all my questions pretty much like outlined what to do, how to create a good culture at work. It was the complete opposite to what I saw previously in the other two. At that point, I was a manager, I guess I was a manager doing full-time Willie Manglis and managing. So that was a crazy little stint and I was quite young too. So, you know, I did the older partying kind of process in between these, like the classic (laughs) hospitality energy, (laughs) which definitely made me stronger, I think, as well. Interesting life as I finished uh, hospitality degree. Sam approached me and he said, "You know, would you be interested in doing a partnered business?" Okay. So this was where I really got the opportunity to get my hands really dirty in the, I guess, the development, the building. So this comes down to pretty much an empty shop. So this was in Burwood or Dosage, and sixty square meter space inside. <laughs> yeah, so right. It was quite a, like a more like a takeaway kind of setup, really big courtyard as well. So Sam. Pretty much gave me the rings to that and said, you know, he threw me in the deep end. Mm-hmm. Location was, so this is another thing I learned as well. Location is so pinnacle and it was horrendous. It was, it was the worst place I could have ever put a cafe. <laughs> Why is that? Um, So it was on the Bellwood Highway yeah. in a medical center and it was kind of a new medical center as well. So there was all these promises of, you know, different businesses going to be coming in upstairs, yeah. all these incentives to come in so we thought all right well this makes sense but it was on a highway so already you know you're going quite quick so it's really hard to see um so in terms of visually it was pretty much near to none in Mm -hmm. terms of like that marketing aspect but yeah so what was great was it was an empty shell. this was really important kind of learn because i learned how to do the how to put your gassing in or whether it's um the electrical plumbing you know where to put the holes or like how to also design interior design of the cafe um that was also a big learning experience. You know what to do, what not to do. Mm-hmm. Why did I do that? Should not have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it was well, should not have done that because <laughs> you know you pay for it later. Yeah, you know, which was absolutely another thing is like you got to you can't be too cheap at initial stages, and then obviously you're working with council regulations and all of that, which is a very big, a very hard. A lot of hoops to run through, and you know, all the red tape and everything, you know, through yep. regulations, um, building permits, etc. So that was definitely probably the hardest time for my career, mm-hmm. but also one that I could definitely, you know, you learn from your mistakes. So even if it's bad, it's always usually comes out in a positive way, which is Great. something I also learned from Sam as well in his ideologies. I tried to implement that in my um, my thought process, and uh, so yeah, dosage was. A slow burner, pretty much in minors for at least about a year, I'd say. Quite average overall mm-hmm. as a business. And then Sam was a very entrepreneurial guy. So his mind was like, you know, go, go, go. Or like <laughs> when he sees like a bright light, you know, he'll shine towards that. And distract, distraction was his number one um <laughs> his, his forte. Yes. And another pop-up came up and this was in Box Hill. So this is uh, under a new development. Box Hill now or, or was at the time as well as now is... They say it's an ex CBD, amazing um, culture going on there. You know, mm. a h- lots of you know, immigration going on. So we thought, in terms of financially, this is the right thing to do. So mm-hmm. an opportunity came up, which is now it's still running today, but it's called um Second Wife. Um, why Second Wife? <laughs> <that's> the term. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, um, I guess by then it would have been his third or fourth business. Okay. So he had a lot of his fingers in all these different pies going on, and I guess this was my second. I guess venture kind of made sense, as in, like, you know, the business is like something like a baby, you could even say, or even your wife, you know, it's a con. it's always there, you know, mm-hmm. there's always um good things happening, there's always bad things happening. It's always <laughs> a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't, you have a lot of sleepless nights. So mm-hmm. that's how Second Wife came to be. And then this one was also, once again, another learning experience. Once again, an empty shell. We did the whole council process again, and interesting enough, was. I found that each council's different. You know, you, yeah. thought, you thought it was all the same. You assumed it was the same, but yeah. no. Some are more stricter. Some are more lenient. It depends on your actual um, councillor. Yes, your assessor. Yes, <laughs> exactly. absolutely. And then, you know, if they go and leave, the next one has a different opinion. So it's... 100%. <laughs> so that was um, frustration and also realisation on how the, bureau- the bureaucratic side of things yeah. worked. Um, and then the hardest thing about... Second wife was the gas, so this was something I really learned was the gas meter installations and stuff like that. You needed gas on premises and make sure that's already in place. Sure. Otherwise, you're going to be waiting months, which was happened to us. So we had everything ready, and then we were held back by the gas company because they don't really give you an approximate date. You know, of course, I understand it's it's a hard thing to do, and so that's definitely something that I realized and said, you know, if I ever do my own business, there has to be gas on site if you are to use gas that is cooking yeah, yeah. and stuff. Those were. Dosage was more so, I'd say, a success story. After about a year, we started picking up, started getting mm-hmm. really busy, while Second Wife was definitely more, I guess, one of the fails right. in terms of profitability. And also, I guess, the concept itself was quite a little bit harder in that area. She found that people didn't really drink coffee in that when we assumed it was an upmarket location. So it also made me realise, yeah, whilst location is good, You know, Mm -hmm. you need to have the right um, clientele demographic, you know, really push your products as well. So, so yeah, so those two have all been recently sold when I say recent before Hibiki started. Obviously once they were kind of sold, it got to the stage where I was like, all right, I'm ready to spread my wings and, you know, give it a crack. And this is where the Hibiki started, which was, I think, four years ago at the time, Actually, throughout and Second Wife, I also played with a lot of Japanese elements. So that's my background, being half Japanese. And there were kind of little snippets of Hibiki, essentially. So it was kind of testing the waters in different environments, different menu settings. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me realize that maybe there is a shot at this. Mm. There's a chance there's a market that's missing. Japanese, I think at the time, was definitely one of the trending I guess cuisines, cultures has predominantly stayed that way, which mm. is very strong, being really consistent. Yeah, um, and I guess when Hibiki opened, the Japanese thing was it was flying everywhere. You know, it was. And then when we opened, we know a lot of other places opened at the same time, and it just happened simultaneously. It's not that we were copying each other; It just yes. kind of boomed together <laughs> as once, um, which is really nice to see as well. You know, obviously. So yeah, so that's pretty much the, my own experience to where Hibiki is today.
0: So Reggie, I was going to ask like, how long were your dosage, and then how long were you at Second Wife in those particular two venues?
1: Dosage was two years, okay. At, I think, and then Second Wife was about a year um, under my, I guess, leadership. Realm, so I guess leadership, yeah. And regards, with Second
0: Wife, was that in a development as well, or was that a standalone sort of business by by yep. itself?
1: So, it was under a new development, mm-hmm. those buildings, and then it was just one of those empty retail shops underneath the building. So, yeah, it was like an empty shell, like I said, and, um, and then Dosage was obviously in a medical center. So, they were mm. both in a commercial, I guess, setting in terms of that. So, Hibiki sure. is a complete opposite where it's on a street front. Yeah, completely different as well.
0: That's what I was going to ask. Like, out of the, having those two venues in developments or in, you know, semi-high rise or whatnot, like... Is that why you chose where Hibiki is? Because it is a standalone. It is, you have to create some movement and activity
1: for people to really come and experience it. It's it's much more bespoke kind of experience in a way. I think so. Yeah, it's it was interesting. So whilst Doshi's in Second Wife, it was good to use an empty shell because you can lay it out the way you want it. It also led to, it just felt a bit stale. It felt a bit cold, I guess, those kind of settings. It didn't have as much heart, I thought as more like a community little setup, like hide and Seek, the first one that I mentioned, which was like a shop front side and a small little strip, which was very busy. So yeah, so having seen the Hibiki location, which is in Camberwell, it's, it's also on the outskirts of Campbell, which is yeah. something that I actually liked. I didn't like, I know how um, competitive it are, the market is already in the yeah. Campbell Junction area. So I figured that little strip in Turak Road, was, there was something missing, I always thought. So the side shop, it used to be an old Thai restaurant. Straight away, I knew gas was on site. Yeah. <laughs> was <one> of the, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> one of the first things I um, <laughs> would look always for. look for. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at the time, I was looking at across all of Melbourne, actually. You know, I looked at locations in Forest Hill, and did Footscray. Yeah, it, I guess the east side of Melbourne was predominantly where I've always been. So I kind of knew my clients, had like quite a few followers. And I figured, you know, I know where I know how things work around this side. Um, I should stick to it. Funnily enough, it's a very old strip. So mm. like I went from brand new setup to probably one of the oldest strips in Melbourne, yes. which I found out recently. It's like over 100 years old. So wow. I think it's one of the first little strips, I think. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> which is really historical, which yeah. is really... um. Nice to be part of, and it was always an interesting little place. I mean, I don't know if you're much familiar with that Turak Road, but yes, exactly. it always it's such a busy intersection, but it just never thrived. It yeah. seemed to have always stayed stagnant for its errors throughout the whole time, and it just questioned me. I was always like, why, 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 why is, is that it a the pass through kind of area? Why is it just mm. a pass through? Why there's, like parking is ample? You know, there's houses around, there's stations. You know, it's on a bike track. It just kind of ticked all the boxes, yet it just didn't seem to. maybe no one really took that opportunity. So I guess I kind of jumped in. And I remember when I made a decision, it was quite fast. I tried to do the whole Samir, like Sam's entrepreneurial approach where you don't think and just do. And that's kind of what I did. (laughs) I remember just contacting the agent and saying, hey, can I have a look tomorrow, you know? And I just, I was helping out Sam at his other cafes at the time. But, you know, I just thought, I just give it a go. You know, there's yeah, no there's yeah. no harm in doing it. And I had to look around and it was really old. It was a mess. The Previous tenants just left it as it is actually. So it's one of those runaway, getaway kind of yeah. scenarios. So it was something like out of, a, out of a movie, which was really interesting. Like the cutlery was set up. Um, <laughs> you know, there was the... Prawn chips still in bags in the kitchen because it's wow. a Thai restaurant. Yeah, wow. The walks were there. Um, God, it's yeah. Like so they the, made the decision on a Friday to. I think just so. Have to leave. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. So the obviously the tenant was eager for someone to jump in because obviously the the lease has must have been cut. Um, so that obviously gave us a lot of room for negotiation, which was really good financially. It was a bit of a state. <laughs> I couldn't eat Thai food. I tell everyone for like three months, the smell was just, wow. the odor was like seeped into the, um, the walls. <laughs> yeah, right. I think the peanut oil and like, yeah. it, it just, they obviously left it in the state. So, you know, grease obviously over time, mm-hmm. smelly and it was, yeah, no, that was, I've never had to do that in my life. The things I had to <laughs> see and cut and remove and demolish, but pretty much, yeah, the off street or well, the street, Side of shop front actually was the right decision at the time, I thought.
0: So how long did it make, from seeing it in person with a real estate agent, how long did it take for you to make an actual decision?
1: About a week. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. so I was pretty quick. Yeah. So a lot of people, yeah, it's, it's mm. very quick. I'm, I've am i got to say probably wasn't the smartest idea. I know a lot of people do business plans and like they look mm. at the surroundings, they do research, you know, they, for me, it was more like a, I believed in my product and I thought the concept would work regardless. And I remember I signed the lease like literally about a week later and I got the keys <laughs> and I remember going through it for the first time once you get the keys, you know, and you know, it's yours, like that whole experience. And at that moment, I, the part of me regretted it, which is interesting. Flying through is, Five you miles. know, yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> like, you know, everything's going really well. I found a location, you know, and then I started looking at the details inside the actual building to fit out. I was like, wow, may have you screwed do. up here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I definitely <laughs> picked the wrong straw on this one. But and obviously, you know, my I had my family's backing on all of this at the start, so there was obviously that kind of pressure to mm. succeed and make sure you know didn't disappoint them as well as financially you know, impact them. Sure. Yeah, there was a lot on the shoulders at that time. Overall, to fit out, I guess took about two months actually. So it was, I thought it was quite a quick process. Interior designing wise, I just did it myself. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. And it was actually kind of on the spot as well, once again. So I didn't go through like the whole design layout and said, oh, let's do this finish or let's look at the measurements. It was all as I went. So luckily I had some good connections, some um, carpenters and so everything was subcontracted as well. So I didn't get a builder. It it made it really hard, of course. So I I guess I was a project manager in that process. So, you know, when to bring the plaster in, Mm -hmm. should a tiler come in first, you know. Mm -hmm is that going to fit through the door? Oh no, it's not going to fit through the door. (laughs) (laughs) Send it back. (laughs) So that itself was, um, maybe another learning curve to possibly next time to consider a builder. But at the same time, it it really, it had me in the process. Like it had my blood throughout the whole layout. Um, I myself was physically in there painting, putting up plastering. So that was another experience as well. Getting a bit of getting your boots dirty and Learning a trick or two as a trade, yeah, I think it's it really showed what I really wanted to portray in that Japanese design. So I got this tendency to always use plywood for at my um, finishes in cafes, which is something I'm just really accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Having gone back to Japan every now and then, you know, you see the finishes are really wood, really minimal, clean wood, and I always found wood to be one of the most I guess welcoming, homey feels, which once again goes back to the concept of Hiviki mm. as, as an idea to make people feel welcome. So and then obviously greenery as well. So I think as long as you have a bit of concrete obviously for that hardstone, durability and a bit of wood for a nice clean look and some greenery to really kind of put the icing on the cake, I think it just yeah, it made sense.
0: Came some comes yeah. into balance in a
1: way. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Overall. Was the idea for hibiki? So, obviously, you've you've played around with some of these concepts, especially obviously menu and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, a dosage and a second wife. Like, did that make you feel really confident about what hibiki was going to be in this because you'd tested and learned yeah. in a probably small way yeah. um, about what the venue was going to be? Or
1: I think the food wise, yes, mm-hmm. I think that definitely made me go, okay, so it does work, that people are interested in it. There is supplies out there as well. So that's another thing I learned was what kind of products was available for me to use in a Japanese direct approach only. But then the concept itself was definitely a risk in terms of the concept of hibiki. So instead of just creating a venue or just a cafe, which, you know, which of course is the main goal here, I wanted to kind of raise eyebrows and questions to kind of really push people to their limits a little bit and wonder what this is. So I guess when we were building, we had like just the word hibiki coming soon. And I think a lot of people found that interesting and was like, you know, what is that? Rather than going, oh, it's just another cafe coming here. It's more like, what is this space? So that was kind of the idea in the initial development process. And it just came to me that I wanted to marry the creative aspects of not only food and service of a cafe, but also how to create a good environment and an atmosphere in a much more young, energetic, creative approach. So it's a little bit weird as I say this, but hibiki overall as a terminology is the concept of echo mm. or reverberate. For me, one of the, I guess, the things that I learned from my previous cafes and as well as, as being a um, customer sitting in venues, I always found, you know, obviously the service has to be good. Of course, we know that um, food obviously one of the most essential components for a good business, coffee, of course, product, pricing. I think it's like the 4P elements that we talk about. But I always found as a fifth element, I always thought was the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So I always thought that's something that always brought people back. I know it brought me back to a lot of locations where I found it really funky or vibing, you know, (laughs) it's a very young kind of um, approach, but that was essential for the whole concept. So the idea was for music to be a really big component not just playing, you know, your top 40s or 50s, which yeah. a lot of cafes do, which is fine as it is, but mm. it was more like marrying like some international beats with, you know, is marrying with some food. So it wanted to create like a bit of a louder, energetic, kind of a nighttime setting done in a daytime kind of approach, which I also thought was missing as well. Because yeah. I thought, well, I go to all these nighttime venues, you know, they've got alcohol and everything flowing, but I was like, why can't this be done during the day? You know, why do we miss out? Why does the cafe is always seen as the quiet brunch, you know? Yeah, good point. Yeah, so I thought I'd try and and like really play with that. And I knew it was a risk, you know, because obviously it's quite a niche kind of concept. But yeah, it worked out. So music was a really big essential, the spacing as well. So I wanted to make sure it wasn't too packed in there, but also, you know, financially viable, having enough seats. The hiviki art concept is something that kind of came a bit later, but it was always something in the back of my mind. So that was bringing in local artists each month, I guess like a free commission space for mm-hmm. them to portray their work. Um, a lot of it's usually Japanese themed. So it kind of made them push themselves in a different direction as well. And we've met some amazing people through that and connections and, you know, and a lot of it sells actually, which is was the biggest shock to my life. Cause yeah. like initially it was just more like a space for them to promote to their showcase work, it. showcase it. Mm. And then, you know, we know we're providing for the community and they're also providing for us. So it kind of worked out both ways. Each month we sell at least one or two copies, you know, and then they also come back as well as, cust- as um, guests as well and then it just kind of expands through that, through word of mouth. Were there venues in Japan that you had taken inspiration on
0: for Hibiki? Like were there ones of note that sort of made it what it is and made this different genre of what you're doing, this sort of day meets night kind of thinking? Because when you were talking about being a project manager and making these quick decisions about the space and about how it's going to move. And, you know, maybe that bench needs to go an extra 30 centimetres longer and we're going to use this type of wood and all that kind of stuff. Like that needs to come from inspiration, right? That needs to come from experience. Absolutely. So, yeah. were, you, so were you getting that from the Japanese tours that you've been on mm. and obviously being, you know, half Japanese yourself? Was that something you sort of got from there?
1: There was definitely components that I did draw in from those experiences. Um for instance, uh, there's this little corner area which I kind of, I'm pretty stoked how it turned out. Is this um, where you put your kind of feet in, but it was still appropriate for like the Western approach of sitting down rather than taking your shoes off, for example. So right. I married the two together. Mm. Um, so it's a very fine line between the Japanese, you know, ways, traditional ways, is also still allowing it to be comfortable yep. for our locals. So that was definitely a little component for example, but I guess overall, most of it was just, I guess, experiences here. Because I guess at the end of the day, I had to make sure the space was, you know, viable for our guests here, because our client, the clientele is the community. But I guess, like I mentioned, the wood finishes and stuff would definitely be something I took from experiences in Japan, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's at mainly like hotels and things like that, Ryokans, which is like more traditional aspects of like the hotels in Japan. Yeah, I think overall it was definitely a local-driven kind of design. I mm-hmm. I'd say. In regards with the sound aspect, it's quite
0: interesting. I went out to dinner with my partner the other night and we had a really good experience of this, this CBD venue. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It was really, really good. Service was on point. Food was great. Sound was shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> to the point where I don't know if we go back on a busy night because I know that in that room with concrete, small short ceilings the aesthetics that they've got don't hold the sound yep if you speak if you're right too close to a speaker then it just reverberates and just c- controls of course the whole experience absolutely so many venues are unfortunately like that and the la- it's the last thought right it's the fifth it really thought. is yeah how did you know that was the case in importance because atmosphere is not the first thing I feel that was front of mind for you. Like, Mm -hmm. even though you say it's a fifth thing, I feel like it was probably the first thing that you sort of thought about in this space, and this atmosphere, how is sound going to be important? How are people's conversations going to change the space? Mm -hmm. How did you come to know that was going to be a thing?
1: Good question. It, like your own experience going out to a venue and being too loud—that's happened previous as well. You know, mm. I, I wouldn't want to name and shame any venues at all, of course. But there are times when you know you you literally scream at your partner, going, "You know, how's your meal? <laughs> you're like, what?" <laughs> and you just put your head down. And you're like, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Which is a, is you're right. It's a shame because it does ruin the experience. Because you know you might tick all the other boxes, but it's like, oh, I don't want to go there. It was too loud that yep. night. So it it is, it's a very fragile, it's marrying the two carefully. So like you said, concrete floors and things. So that's another importance in the design that I actually thought. So I know wood is a soft finish, Mm -hmm. which usually absorbs sound. So that was very important. And I know mine's concrete floors. We've got plaster ceilings. So that doesn't have a difference rather than having an exposed ceiling, you know, that should hopefully soften it as well. So... I think I had a lot of confidence in my food and my drinks. I knew how to do that. I thought mm-hmm. through my experiences at dosage, um, mostly dosage as well. I guess the one that I really wanted to play with was the sound concept and like the atmosphere like you mentioned. I didn't want any awkwardness pretty much. I wanted to make sure people felt comfortable the moment they walk in. You know, there's quite a few times when maybe you're the only person there where it's a shame when you're the only one when the food and everything's excellent, but there's yep. no atmosphere. At least you can blindsight that with a bit of sound, you know, whether it's different music that they're not too familiar with. So it kind of makes them maybe feel more cultured. I don't know. You could even say great point. maybe youthful as well, if you're a bit of an older generation and trying new foods as well. So I think that might be blindsides them to focus on, you know, the meal itself rather than going, Oh, this is really awkward. I need to get out of here. Yes. <laughs> you definitely don't want that. No. <laughs>
0: Because the brand is so authentic, do you find that it's become a destinational venue as opposed to just a freaking great cafe in, a, in Camberwell that relies on a lot of local trade? Like, do you find that people are coming from a long way away to try Habiki for the first time or, or come as regular customers? Yeah,
1: so that's been um, definitely something that's developed over these few years so of course initially it was a very locally driven idea you know I was it was a small scale idea like to be honest where Hibiki is now was not the goal i had placed i was pretty keen on just a small little setup being a cute little japanese cafe like we all japanese people try and portray across the board yes that was the idea i didn't want to be a roaring, crazy venue initially, of course. Mm. I've never been in that crazy setup or been a chance to be in a podcast like this talking to you. You It was more like a a side gig that I could just focus on primarily with, you know, food and stuff. So over time, obviously, we had our other publications jump on board. We had, at the time, Urban List was real big fans to the point where they actually jumped in without even regardless of any requirements or anything like that. They literally wanted to showcase us regardless so that was a huge honor in that's that sense um Mm -hmm. and that really (laughs) ignited the um the fire i guess the flare. yeah and obviously then broadsheet of course i have some connections through them i mentioned it to them as well and they were like yep absolutely we'd love to do a little piece on you i guess you know everyone knows about the broadsheet effect and it was nuts it was it was chaotic it was (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't great to be honest it was it was actually full on, you know, I, I could see the venue wasn't built for that kind of like demand that yeah. went through. So that was really interesting to try and um, balance as well. So I guess throughout the weekdays, it tends to be more locally driven clientele, which is really great because that was one the most important thing. I know regulars is the retention is the key to surviving anything. And it just goes to show with this current pandemic that went past, was still going as well, but the weekends tended to be very long traveling Mm. um, clients. So that really made me realize that, wow, this is, you know, people traveling far to come to this venue. And on top of that, you know, on the weekends, we do have a wait list most occasions. And there are times when it's like close to a 30 to 40 minute wait, which is for a cafe, that's, you know, it's unbelievable. It's very unusual. Like personally, (laughs) I will not wait 30, 40 minutes. (laughs) Dinner dinner on the other hand though, you would. So, w- which is always interesting. It's like why, like, obviously, you know, people are working during the day. I guess that's a bit of a, a time block for them. Nighttime's more like, you know, the night's young and free. It's your whole night. So, but it's interesting. Yeah. So a lot of people do wait, which is like a huge surprise as well as an honor that they're willing to wait for that long just for the experience. So, and then obviously I've got the new concept future next door, which yep. I can talk about a bit later, but mm-hmm that's also kind of aided to this whole venue experience as well, rather than just a cafe, like you said. So it's becoming a brand, I guess, in terms of that. And I'm just trying to take it day by day and see, you know, where to go with it or, you know, keep on stay strong and hold on to something that you've got sure. and don't get too greedy and stuff. So yeah. finding that balance. <laughs> Obviously you said, you you know, Hibiki's been around for four years now,
0: like yeah. the last two years, especially been. Such so a destinational place, but obviously having locals there as well. Um, Victoria having five k sort of radiuses you can only go, and all that kind of stuff. Like, how has that affected such a unique venue like Hibiki? Like, how have you been challenged the last two years yeah. to to keep it going and still innovate?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It was it was actually a, a fear at the time going back to clientele how on the weekends we got so busy where I actually feared the locals might actually avoid it, which I completely understand, you know. Sure. You you drive past and you're like, oh. I'm not waiting 45 minutes. not waiting 45, you know, Mm -hmm. which I completely understand. So when the pandemic did hit and these, you know, obviously 5K radiuses fell in, there was this huge fear that I was like, oh, my God, we're going to become that crazy, trendy, one-time hit song for that little period and just disappear. So there was Mm -hmm. that huge fear at that point, uh, I'll have to admit. And I guess that – launched into the whole fight or flight kind of scenario. It's a human instinct and it was, yeah, it was fight for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, bit. Um, And it, like you said, creativity is still one of the underlining pins of my concept. So obviously I'm, I'm kind of the owner head chef as well. So cooking was one of the most comfort concepts, obviously during those periods, you know, we all put on a couple of Ks, which is great. Now we're trying to fight it off, but it was definitely a challenge that I relished. In a ironic way, I know it was very hard. I on the other hand actually took the challenge on really head on. I guess like like I said, any negative situation, I could try to turn it in a positive way. So there wasn't a moment where I stopped. There wasn't a, like there was a time when obviously you're freaking out, going, "Oh my god, you know, how are we going to survive?" But rather than you know reacting, it was more trying to be proactive. So came jumping online, for example. So I remember the first lockdown was getting announced, the very first one. Um, it was all new to us. I I knew that I had to jump online straight away. So, because at the time, everything was on paper, you know, we're still yeah. like a classic cafe. Mm-hmm. We weren't really branded out too much at the time. So, you know, Uber its obviously is the devil, but it's also one of the things that did save us. So that was a crazy couple of nights. I remember, you know, getting the photos getting uploaded. The up and oh, all that stuff. <laughs> Copy paste this. <laughs> yes. Oh, it doesn't work in that font. you got to take a photo in the landscape, portrait, like all these little details yeah. to fit all the different um, platforms. platforms. Yeah. Mm. And then, you know, we jumped on Mr. Yum for like an online uh, contactless approach, of course, because, you know, it was such a fear of just getting contracting this COVID virus. So we had to be careful as well, mentally on the front, you know, I know the front of house staff had to, they were like on the battlefields, I guess, out the front, you know, talking to these customers, risking their, you know, their health, Their health, their loved ones around. So, you know, it was definitely an experience, that's for sure.
0: Was there something in your business which you weren't doing before, which you've kept on? now post COVID, like is, is delivery and that
1: kind of stuff with Uber, like, are you still continuing that? Yeah, look, we, it just kind of, of, at the start, I was like, okay, it's going to be a short thing. You know, it's a short term thing. Sure. I'm going to focus on dining, in, of course, but you know, no, no one knew it was going to go for two years. So yeah. it is still, yeah, it's still part of our uh, marketing, part of our, mm-hmm. I guess, operations, um, the whole system itself has a it thrown a challenge. Yeah, it's, it's like things like packaging, you know, like little details like that. And like, where do you put the extra overloaded packaging in a setup where you've designed for just dining? You know, and then how do you operate that into your service in the kitchen, as well as the front of house, you know, where do they put the bags? Like it was all these little things and like all the million tablets going on at the front, like a cockpit, yeah. really hard yes. for them. Yeah. And we've luckily integrated it all into one system now, which is took lots of research and development as well. So that's like, a, I guess, a new, a new field, a new important concept of hospitality you have to consider yep. now. Mm. And I guess takeaways like the new things. So definitely um, it's important now part of our, uh, I guess, our message across is that we are online and you can still dine in as well. But things that stayed on definitely is some food items for sure. So for example, Jaffles. So Jaffles was a big thing I did at Dosage. Uh, had the smallest kitchen in the world, size of like a single bed. Yeah, <laughs> right. Two people in there. Yeah. And it was just Jaffle after Jaffle. We used to sell like yeah. hundred Jaffles a day. Wow. Yeah, it was really great. In the middle of Bearwood. it was yeah, very, wow. you wouldn't think so. It's something you'd probably picture in Fitzroy or, you know, yes. obviously the more trendy places. So jaffle was something that I knew and it worked. I knew it's worked in such a hard location. So it made me go, no, well, this will work regardless in a COVID pandemic situation as well. That's still on the menu today as well. It's, it's a kind of like a quick and go kind of process, which has mm-hmm. really worked out. It's just extra position in the kitchen as well. And it allows you to put whatever you want in a jaffle. We all know you can put anything in. It's like a pie pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in Sandoz as well. So that's a really big... I guess, trend that went crazy mm-hmm. and still is the sandwich <laughs> concept is yeah. just exploding here. But obviously we focus on the Japanese sandwich, a soft, pillowy, shokupan mm-hmm. kind of approach. And that, called it the ISO sando at the time, actually, did it went for about a year. And then we change it up every couple of weeks, which is really good. So it made us be creative in that sense. And that's um, now at future as well. So mm-hmm. that was a good experience. But yeah, lockdown, we did quite a cool few things. We did... Well, we did like a COVID curry run, I remember. So, this was kind of like a hospitality help thing that we did in the, the long one, I do believe. all yeah. we pretty long, but pretty much what was it? Every Thursday, any um, hospitality staff members, well, pretty much anyone who was struggling could come in and grab themselves a free Japanese curry, and we changed the curry every week. So, it was a really cool little idea. It was something that I wanted to do personally, knowing that obviously, whilst it is good PR work as well, it was also... I was kind of wanting to help out because I knew how hard it was out there. And we worked with a local um, baker as well who, um, who did bagels as well, did like a furikake bagel. So it was amazing the relationships you built. <laughs> Ironically, 5K radius, yet yeah. you felt closer than ever <laughs> building these relationships. So yeah, that was really cool. And I used to do the curry drops off, drop offs myself. So we got to the point where we were taking pre-orders, you know, and it was more like a no shame kind of approach because I know it's quite confronting coming in and receiving a free meal. Of course. So I said, well, why don't I come to you then? I don't have to see you or anything. Can be contactless. So we set it up. If you remember every Thursday I used to drive around all day across the east side. We've been like about a 10K zone of yep. Campbell. And used to do drop-offs to so finish around five, six and then come back in and then i would be the delivery driver at nighttime. So
0: <laughs> there was nothing to do. <laughs> no, of course. You might as well drive. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Like yeah. rather than losing that 35% commission to Baritz, I was like, you know, yeah. I'll drop it off for you, you know? Yeah, for sure. That was a great little thing. Done we did like a live DJ recording every now and then as well. So we got one of my friends in who's a well-known DJ in the city. Um, and obviously their industry got impacted as well. So this is where the creative Aspect comes once again into play where I could showcase him through like a live um, Instagram feed where it was like, you know, Saturday night we're featuring this DJ. I had one of the kitchen hands, jump up on every t- every now and then as well. Yeah, so it was a, it was a real nice um, motivation for myself as well as our community but also my staff members as well who copped it probably very hard. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, that was a few little initiatives that we did.
0: Do you <laughs> find like you said at the start of the podcast that you sort of Lent on Sam a lot mm. like you still do you yeah. know for information and probably guidance to some degree like I know I've got those relationships in my in my life as well did you find during lockdown that people were coming to you because you'd obviously had this successful cafe you like you'd be in the industry for mm. for a decent amount of time and then
1: we're looking to you for guidance as well absolutely in terms of venues I I know like quite a few guys in the in this industry but um I think we all kind of did our own thing, which yeah. I found throughout the whole process. But we did do some collaborations as mentioned, which is something I guess we kind of bounced off one another. Um, so for example, there's these three chefs that we know called the Number Boys. They've mm-hmm. um they've popped up every now and then. They've got some great experience. They did a pop-up at the back and we did this big event. It was such a success. It was great for the area. It mm-hmm. brought in different clientele once again. But so they were doing like food on skills, like proper street food street vibe kind of style and then we were like doing our own main kitchen as well so it was a great experience overall we did it with another couple of little grills they called it pretty good grills they're like uh, a couple of girls who do it as well so it did marry that kind of concept of helping one another mm-hmm. absolutely and then using that hibiki brand and offsetting onto their own little things which is really good nice but i guess internally definitely definitely morally it was quite a hard time of course like a lot of my staff were international students so yeah I I, I can't I can't imagine that situation they're in and it's something I will never ever know so that's something I always try and look at in in a broader you know perspective but um, I definitely did do all these creative concepts in order to not only keep the business alive of course to give them work but also create a bit of sense of family where they felt like there was some normality going on there is some hope during these dark times so yeah, for sure. yeah which was um a good experience can i ask how you shouldered all that pressure like cuz we said at the yeah. start
0: like obviously you know you've got family money that was involved in a at the start and uh, i think your brothers involved mm, for memory yes, as well yeah. and then you've got international students who are not getting support from the government like they rely on the fact that you're giving them shifts and food and all those kind of things like that's a lot
1: yeah to burden <laughs> yourself with it was um my shoulder was pretty heavy. Yeah. So a couple of definitely those two years. I think is very lucky that the brand established itself prior to this. So I think using that positivity of knowing the brand was strong, I was able to say, okay, that's fine. We're going to survive regardless. Now let's go into something else. So I guess I was able to balance the two or well obviously the 10 other <laughs> issues going <laughs> on. <laughs> um, All the precious. Yeah. That. It's, hmm. It is hard, of course, like uh, um, the amount of times as an entrepreneur, it's just the the things we go through is quite something that a lot of people don't really recognize or appreciate or even address. Yes. You know, owners always seen as such a, there's quite a negative stigma, which I've always found frustrating having been now in these shoes. Sure. However, as an employee previously, I kind of understand why, you know, Mm. like I said, I had some Terrible experience with some owners, you know, where it was kind of like, well, why? Why? Why are they always seen as like a dodgy kind of approach? Like, what is this? Well, why is every hospitality venue seen as a dodgy? Yeah, it, it got to me to the point where, you know, it, there must be a reason. You know, it, they can't all just married from like the one family members <laughs> with bad ethics, you know, it, it doesn't yes. make sense. Yeah. It's not <laughs> a whole industry. Yeah. No, it isn't. Yeah, yeah. So it made me realize that these guys must be under something, some kind of pressure that no one understands. Yeah. Like they're forced to bend their knee. They're forced to bend their arms, yep. do these dodgy practices. So yeah. that was something that I realized being in these shoes, of course. There was that kind of pressure as well. There was some dark days, of course, you know, there was some mornings were hard to get, get up, especially the first few weeks, of course. But I guess once you saw the numbers stay consistent you know mm. to the point of just breaking even which was amazing you know the fact that if you could do 50% trade was actually a really good thing for the first year so yeah and then we got to the point where it was starting to become profitable which was amazing. amazing yeah I think I was in a small small bracket at the top in a, you know and thanks to the concepts obviously of not just myself but the team itself like we all really rallied on together and I've got some sponsorships going on as well so that was another good and bad thing for them. Cause you know, it kind of made them stuck here yeah. at the same time. They couldn't even go home. So they <laughs> have to dealing with that emotional That's right. challenge. There was a them. lot of emotional challenges for those guys. Yeah. So having to be kind of like a peer and say, you know, everything's going to be okay. It's going to come through or give them guidance, you know, what to do, how to stay mentally strong, give them as much work as I could. So it was a lot of pressure. Absolutely. But I knew it was worth it at the end. I knew the light at the end of the tunnel as much as it was two years later, you know, is now coming into place now, I think. And it's starting to see it. Yeah. It's, mm. it's really concrete now, mm-hmm. which like I said, staffing wise, I know the whole industry is struggling right now, but I'm quite blessed to have a good team. And I think all that hard um, mental, you know, issues that I faced uh, carrying all those shoulders on has now come out in a very positive aspect. And now we're you know, really strong moving forward. Just a break
0: in the podcast to
1: let you know that Fine Food Australia
0: returns this September to Melbourne. For nearly four decades, Fine Food has been the leading trade event for all food, from retail to hospitality, manufacturing to bakery. Visiting Fine Food will be the recipe to fast track your business for commercial success. Just a reminder that this is a free event to attend, so make sure you register at finefoodaustralia.com.au. Now back to the podcast. I think if I think back to all the podcasts I've done with founders over the last couple of years and they talk about how they handled the first couple of months, mm-hmm. have determined how well, like they've obviously all stayed trading, that kind of stuff, but terms of how well they've done out of the back end of this. Like I think the fact that you helped your staff at the start, like really cared, wanted to do collaborations across the board and then that's the reason why you've been able to do more things, to mm-hmm. be successful, to be profitably around, so I think if I look at a trend with who I'm speaking to, like mm. it, it's very similar things that they yeah. all did. It's because they really gave a shit. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> know what I mean? Maybe, yeah. Like it's like it's really, 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 really interesting. Let's talk about future. Yeah. Because obviously it's so unique, such a cool little space. Like it was cool to see the last uh, couple of weeks ago when I was there with you.
1: Explain how that came about, what it's about. Future is one of those things that stemmed off COVID. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, which I know some venues have actually done, which is really cool. I think whenever there's like a down, there's always an opportunity. So that's something I kind of took on. Big, big risk, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. that we pretty much leased next door during the pandemic, which was... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I remember me and my brother talking about it. Um, it was quite a risk. So pr- prior to this, um, actually, we did want to do a venue in Tokyo. So my brother is based in Tokyo at the time right. um, and he's obviously, like I said, he's, he's partnered in this whole process. So he's behind the scenes, you know, I'm on the front of the house keeping the, I guess the oil running behind the scenes, <laughs> dealing with my mess, <laughs> 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 um, you know, taxation, payrolls, yeah. anything. Stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Which he, he loves. So it really works out um, in terms of a relationship. So, yeah, so Tokyo was always on the plan. Um, we actually got to the point where he was looking at some lease leasing and obviously the different um how to go about it in their council regulations. Like I said, it's a whole different world over there. But then obviously COVID hit, so there was kind of like that. All right, well, we've got to do something now. So we figured future was the next step. So we could have obviously opened up the dining space, which kind of made sense considering there's always a line. So in broader senses, I was like, Maybe we should do that, but then part of me knew with COVID here, it also made us realize that well, Hibiki is a brand. We should go in a branding sense rather than focusing on the one um, aspect of hospitality, of dining takeaway. Mm-hmm. We should see what other opportunities there are in a retail sense. So I guess the Japanese goods of the future actually came from selling it in house during COVID. Okay. So, you know, we, we saw that across the board, wine yep. bottles up on the windows Uh, which I (laughs) love. Like they're selling their stock, you know, they're getting rid of it, which of course, absolutely. We had so much wine left over. And so, and then all of a sudden we started doing, I was like, oh, soup bread, you know, there's some bread. We may as well, we try and support the local bakery, like our brioche by Philip, because I know they copped it really hard too. So there was all this constant supporting our suppliers, because obviously we're the front line. We have to sell the goods, obviously Japanese suppliers as well. I know they were struggling really hard. So, we did our part and started selling kiwi mayonnaise, for example, even little things. like, that. And we saw it moved. It was it was kind of really cool to kind of visualize on the tables. And I think that's where, you know, me and my brother were talking, like, let's, let's do next door, you know, let's, let's do a konbini, like convenience store. So, yeah, so future as a terminology was once again, because we're doing a whole different aspect before, let's go in a different trading name as well as for yep. brand um, rather than going, you know, Hibiki Pantry or Hibiki Grocers. As much as that made sense, of course, which... You know, in hindsight, it does. I Mm -hmm. just knew that if we had a different alias, it would allow us a different opportunity thinking. And it also would raise eyebrows once again, like rather than sticking to the same concept and getting a bit stagnant, it was like, oh, this is a new future, new concept. So I haven't really touched on the nighttime things that we do, but that's Mm -hmm. called Hibiki Kuro. So Kuro meaning black in Japanese. So the Mm -hmm. idea was, I guess you could even portray it as like a club venue. One club might be a different name one night. And then the next day, it's a different name at the same venue.
0: Wow, that's sick. So,
1: yeah. (laughs) That's how I kind of approached all these three concepts. So, Kudor obviously is black. So, we bring the blinds down at nighttime. We dim the lights real down and we turn the music real up. Kind of that whole modern experience that nighttime Melbournians love. Yes. So... Future was also that kind of idea. Why future? I guess it, for us, it's moving into the future for grocery items, the whole takeaway concept. I feel like it's going to be quite a new idea moving forward, honestly. Yeah. I guess as as we become modern as well, you know, food coming to your door, you know, there's all these groceries where they send food and then there's, you know, there's HelloFresh and all of that. You know, it's really becoming that. I feel like that's a really new upcoming market. So I figured becoming a grocer was really important. In case another lockdown comes, we never know as well. So that was another thing to kind of really save our ass mm. if something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, so yeah, futures, obviously Japanese orientated convenience store experience, like in Japan, cover all the, I guess, all the bases. So you've got all your essential condiments of the Japanese goods, um, sweets, and even like shampoo and stuff. So yeah. we try and kind of concept in, mm-hmm. which you don't usually see at a pantry grocer. Bakery, of course. So this is another thing that we stemmed off, like a previous mention. And I thought, well, Shokupan Mm -hmm. seems to be in right now. And we really wanted to promote that. Obviously got Bro Nuts and stuff trying to support them. Um, plants as well, like I said, my love affair for greenery (laughs) is now (laughs) selling, (laughs) which is uh, very interesting, Um, and then I guess the more cooler niche products is the local Japanese goods, so things like, there's like Kaukau, Miso and Dalesford, so this is where we get really niched, I guess, trying to support our local scene, Um, there's like another sauce company in Sydney, one of the chefs are doing that, there's like a notebook as well called Inkuko, they've just started as well, so trying to become like front for them as well. Um, local potteries as well. So we've got a local pottery doing his work. Um, Japanese knives, of course. Mm-hmm. So we knew there was a market for that. And my brother has a pretty of a love affair for that in terms of the Kapabashi, which is a hospitality street in Tokyo. He lives around the corner at that time. So made sense to bring some knives in. Oh, alcohol as well. So that's yeah. a new thing that we just um, got our package liquor licensing recently. So yeah, so whiskey. <laughs> Going back to the concept of Hibiki, I think everyone's aware is yes. a... A type of whiskey from Santori. We decided to really push the whiskey market to know to be a venue where you can just go for whiskey sake as well. So we're working with um, a local sake, I guess like sommelier, you could even say, called Sake Connect. She's um she's really great. Got, you know, your classic strong zeros, your asahis and things like that as well. So, oh, and then obviously the food. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the main component, I guess. So takeaway bentos has been quite a big success, um, a so it's been really nice, but it's all in a cold setting, so it's a little bit tricky to marry that with the local scene, because you know, for me, as well as growing up in Australia, I always found food should be hot. Japan, on the other hand, they're happy to eat cold chicken or cold rice, so that's been interesting to try and merge the two, but like I said, people here love the Japanese community, they're willing to try new things, so... And then obviously the Sando's as well. So we've got about six varieties going. We've got the little sushi burrito things, which have been featured quite a bit every now and then through some publications. So yeah, it's it's been fun. <laughs> I feel like you've kind of come full circle when you sort of said, you
0: know, Uber Eats has been like the brand you didn't want to care about. And now you're doing grocery. Now you're doing food. Now you're thinking about takeaway where before like the only thing you would have done takeaway is probably coffee, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and really focus on that. Like, so I feel like you've had this full circle moment Mm. where you've realized how important and how popular Hibiki as a brand is. Are you feeling so confident now that you're thinking about Habiki as a brand for doing other things outside of like food and outside of venues and that kind of stuff? Like, do you want to take it in other realms?
1: I think we are up to that stage, yes. Yeah. So I guess I'm um, having this constant battle myself is between staying humble in this small scale approach rather than going big to the point where, you know, you stretch yourself, of course. Sure. So so there is there's a part of me holding back, obviously, because I, I like what's going on right now. Yeah. Um I believe in staying connected to my staff members personally as well, rather than, you know, being that owner who nobody knows or, you know, comes in, walks yeah. out. I think that's a terrible culture that further promotes that bad employer aspect. So, but yeah, no, there's definitely talks right now about doing our own branding in terms of sources or condiments like that. So we already know quite a few local places have done that, which has been a huge success. Just take, for example, like Chottomoto's, like, you know, would <laughs> you bought one? The other. Yes. Oh my God, <laughs> that chili oil. Um, Funny enough, um, the manager at Future um, Moto-san, he's a Japanese guy. He tells me how much it sells and he's just like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like yeah. it's just oil, but you know, it's good oil. And I love the fact that they've branded to the point where Chotomoto is now an oil brand rather than a location. So it's amazing how they've done that. And I take huge influence from that and do want to kind of use that in our own model. So whether it's a hibiki chili oil, we've, I'm actually coming out with a concoction. As well, it's like a j- bit of a Japanese like nori duka, like a seaweed duka mm-hmm. that I've also kind of made as well, which is also on the menu right now. So yeah, you're right. Uh, there is something I do want to push into the point. And there's also doors of possibly like becoming like a distribution center for bentos and stuff. So that obviously be in a bigger location in a commercial kitchen setting. That, that could be something that we are possibly considering down the line. But yeah, I do primarily want to make sure the cafe is still the main front all things creative and obviously to success. So I am trying to find a balance <laughs> between those two. And like I said, it's finding good stuff now to carry on that name and the and to overlook projects like that. It's it's quite hard to convince and also you know keep on because you know obviously they might want to do their own things or and right now they're they're already doing something you know. So mm. it, it's it's to the point where you would you rather stretch yourself thin mm. and lose the connection and then like have a more uh, of, like, a top down approach, do we yeah. want that, or do we want to give and take? Yeah, mm. do we want to maintain that organic, you know, well cultured workspace. So, I'm just trying to find a good balance at the moment. <laughs> Can you sort of think in your head,
0: like, I remember when I was a business owner, sort of in my 20s and stuff like that, and my ego was telling me, like, I just want to go big mm. and I want to do more locations, and that's all I want to do. Yeah, like, I care about <laughs> the quality, but the ego was, you know, the. You know, 25-year-old Sean Ego was yeah, going, hey, Sean, <laughs> just do as many as you can, bro, because then you can make heap of money. Like, that's Absolutely. what I was thinking. Yeah. But you seem much more connected, especially to, this, to the first location. Mm. Is there a, not a want for you to go and do a kusume or something like mm. that, like a big kind of Japanese venue statement? Like, is it important for you to keep it small because then you can control the experience a bit more and stay more to authenticity and
1: about what you see is really valuable. I I think that's some. Which that's the direction I am definitely leaning towards. You know, th- there's this old saying where they say, you know, having too many is actually less. So, <laughs> that's <a great> <laughs> <laughs> which is something that we forget about at places. Like yeah. you said, you know, young ego, like same thing. Like there's part of me that knows can grow this huge. I can do a pop-up in the corner. Yep. I can do a hole in the wall in the city. You know, a lot of people have said, you know, why don't you do this here? Or agents have approached me and said, let's do a venue over here and stuff like that, you know. And I know it would work, but I just know – I just know the the issues that will come with that. So obviously the bigger you get, the bigger problems there are. Obviously the more staff members you know goes back to the reasons why I can't expand too much is because there's just still looking for them right now but you know partners obviously to further expand. It's not mm. it's not like selfish in terms of like I wanting to keep it myself and just yeah. be lonely. Yeah, I don't um, feel that. It's more it, I just know it's more important to just stick to what's small and what's good right now rather than you know, risking rocking the boat too much to the point where you're another venue where, you know, the owner has his name. And then, you know, <laughs> which I've personally found throughout a lot of experience with my own staff, like they've told me about their previous employers. So I'm listening in, I'm listening carefully to everyone and just making sure, try and do the opposite in terms of actually being like a role model as an owner to try and make sure, you know, there are good owners out there. Yeah. Trying to really promote that and say, yeah, that's one of the most, I think that's the fundamental pillars of any organization is the working culture, which is so important. So that's something I learned at the other places as well. Sam's working culture was phenomenal. It's something that I always look back on and something yeah. I will forever model on. So he cared so much about his staff. You know, he would throw in an extra every now and then, whether it's bonuses, whether it's, you know, socializing events. And it's also, a bit of a non- non-caring non approach a little bit. It's yeah. more like you learn from your mistakes rather than me telling you you're wrong. So it really promotes, you know, yeah, motivation. It makes you want to do better. So mm. I think that's definitely an outcome that I've seen in my service and my staff. And I, I just like to do, I like to focus on one thing primarily, which is really interesting. So for example, if I'm in the dishes, um, I'm going to do the dishes. Like there's not where I'm going to be like, oh, a bit of an airhead and do this and then walk off, yeah, sure. you know, just because I'm an owner. It's more like, you know, you're part of the team, you know, they need you there because you are part of the system. So you should follow through and play your part and show them that you're actually just like an employee rather than an employer. So, yeah, there's a bit of that going on right now. Yeah. Which I really enjoy. <laughs> How have you been
0: self-aware enough to become a better boss over the last four years? Do you, do you think Has that come from... Are you listening to things? Like, are you reading things? Does it just come from experience? Come talking to other people in the industry?
1: Yeah. So definitely experience. I think maybe I'm quite, I must be quite observant. You are. (laughs) (laughs) To look at what to do and what not to do, I think. So with Sam, I saw everything that he did and I took it down, You know, not by note by note, but more so through my own attitude and my behavior towards others as well. But then also, experience from other people like I said they've spoken of you know other employees are doing this or you know they're so big right now and I don't even know where they are when two years ago they're really small and they're really nice so there's this whole I'm watching it evolve and it seems like no matter how successful an owner or an entrepreneur becomes people are obviously not going to be in favor of it which is always seems to be the case of course that's that's just human nature it's not down to people it's just it's how we react. We get jealous, I guess, obviously. So there's obviously that humble approach I always want to maintain. You know, money isn't a thing that I ever look at actually, funnily enough. My brother's obviously more on the accounting side of things, but I'm the one who's splurging and just doing whatever I want to do and making sure it works. That's how I think I've learned to stay calm. But then also there's moments when I've have made mistakes, absolutely. And I've always assessed those mistakes later. You know, why did I react like that? So Especially in the kitchen, you know, it's such a heated, heated location. And <laughs> <Surely>. <laughs> I think that's one of the hardest environments I've ever, ever put my foot in. And I always knew, you know, chefs are always crazy. You know, you're always, you know, frying pans, tantrum, chewed, so whatever it's drugs, alcohol, whatever it needs to be. And I always, uh, there was always a, an unknown fact that I always wanted to see what, why, you know, why are they always like this? And then that's why I started getting myself into the cooking side of things. And I applied myself in a head, Role position, and I put myself on the grills, on the mains, you know, under that pressure. Understand it, and try and understand where these guys are coming from. And it was interesting; like it really opened my eyes, and I realized, like, God, that sucks. This is this is fucked. Yes. <laughs> like the pressure they're under. Like the moment that you start at you know seven thirty, you're against the clock. The amount of yeah. prep that you have to do, the times, the poach takes going for two minutes thirty seconds. It's going off. You've got the toast burning. You know, you've got running out of plates. Oh, the plumbing's not working now. Dishwash is broken. You know, yep. there's all these factors going on at once. <laughs> I need to place an order. Yeah, yep. it's very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's five o'clock. I need to place that order now. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to miss out. Now I have to go shopping because I yeah, didn't make the I've, cutoff. Yeah, <laughs> been so many times. Um, so that, that's, I've loved that as well. That's kind of a challenge. I've definitely thrived off kitchen and it's allowed me to be creative as well. So I guess cooking is a love affair of mine that I've really owned in terms of like as an owner-chef. I kind of do want to go into that scene a little bit as well, myself personally, um, Mm kind of play around with and see different chefs as well. So that's another thing is I want to see how different kitchens work as well. Did you change anything operationally in the kitchen when you had experienced all that? Or was it a case that maybe the
0: space wasn't Mm -hmm. enough that you could change anything operationally, but at least you could understand what the team
1: was going through? It was definitely understanding the team Mm -hmm. was going through. So... It was great to really see the system in place as well. You know, like, I guess like a product, uh, sorry, production line. So, sure. you know, it, it comes down to every mise on place movement. Yeah. everything is so important in the kitchen, yeah. you know, placement. Every step. Absolutely. Yep. So that one extra movement will hinder the next process. So, yep. and, you know, we've got lines out the door. So it is constant, like, <laughs> 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 and then keeping up with prep, you know, keeping the quality as well. So it was very interesting to finally put myself in that position. But I realized, I guess, no matter who you are, there are times when you're going to probably crack. And I kind of wanted to throw myself actually in there to see how much could I really push myself. Because I know being an entrepreneur, as I get bigger, I need to understand where my staff are. I need to understand the pressure points and I need to understand where my limits are as well. Mm. So that was really um, a good test for me. There's a few times I've definitely exploded on occasion, you know, and I look back and, you know, God, I'm such an idiot. Go back and apologize straight away. It's a a very violent environment, of course, as we know. But it it really shouldn't be, though. So that's the thing where I'm starting to realize that you can make a good kitchen, you can make a good environment as long as the leader, which is obviously quite number 101 management. So I've tried to maintain my composure, obviously, moving forward. If there's any problems, it's not, it's, it's being proactive I've been reactive. So, you know, if this order didn't get through and, you know, it's always like, oh man, can you put this through ASAP? Most chefs would lose it, which for me never made sense. Cause I was like, right, <laughs> what? Well, why are you losing it? It's just another order. Yes. You know, just add it in the middle if you can, cause obviously if your production line is good enough, you can maintain and mm-hmm. should be able to handle it. So it's obviously how you react. And then that obviously as a leader will kind of stem into your team. Mm. And it's keeping good environment. So little little things like music. This is another thing I've applied in the kitchen. Interesting. So rather than having a dark, quiet kitchen, it creates a very dark dark environment. Rather, I've like installed extra lights, for example, made it a bit more clean and professional. The music on, like, try and really keep the vibe in there just as strong as at the front, because mm. it's, it's not fair. Like, why back of house is one of the hardest working locations in anything is never getting to see. The success outside when the front of house is out there seeing, you know, getting able to socialize, you know, a bit more relaxed <laughs> to a degree. Kitchen doesn't get to see any of the final products. So that's always interesting to the point where I'm like starting to wanting to be more in the kitchen and actually maybe become an advocate inside of the, the back of house world. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, so that's so- another little thing.
0: I'm very big on, like, the employee experience. Like, I Mm. think that's more important than the customer experience because if you have happy employees, you're going to have happy customers, right? correct. But I haven't heard someone articulate it like that in regards to back-of-house staff. I haven't thought about that because often with the employee experience in an actual shift, we think about it for Mm. front-of-house because front-of-house are having a very trying time. Of course. But also they're having a fun time because it's got the music, it's got the theatre, it's got – you see the reaction of a customer, you get positive reaction – Hopefully, sometime you you know you get a lot more positive than negative. Mm. But if you're in back of house, it's sort of this just this pit sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right? And you're right, this sort of dark pit. Yeah. And we don't think about lighting. We don't think about no. music. No one's ever told me that before. Oh, you? There you go. <laughs> that's really interesting. It makes a lot of cool. sense. Yeah. And I think why maybe open kitchens were such a big thing, like yes. in the early two thousands and stuff, because it brought everything I think so. together. That's but a if, great thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got back of house and front of house like you do, like that's.
1: That's so important. It was, it's always like at other like venues I've been to. And like I said, like what I've heard from others, you know, chefs are always angry orders. Yeah. And then that, that creates the, quite a violent negative attitude towards the front of house where there's constant front of house, back of house wars, which is yeah. always the case, no matter where you go. And I think marrying those two together and making sure there's no confrontation or any issues there is the successful culture to the point where you know you know everyone everyone's names you know a lot of chefs will just don't even care they don't even know who you are and stuff but like we yep. get to the point where we try and introduce ourselves you know we laugh a lot we, we try and have some fun so i think culture has been one of the biggest importance of building hibiki as well as a brand so yeah. keeping good staff and i want to come to a good environment as well so like if i'm walking in point. and it's quite negative you know i will either react and flip the switch and say no guys this is not how we do it yeah look a mistake has been made you know it's it's okay you know it happens maybe the toast was a little bit more burnt or maybe the presentation was a little bit dirty you know you can you can mention it but rather than saying do it again it's more like all right for next time you should know how to do it and yeah, you can't say anal about every little thing i've realized you know mistakes do happen like everyone's the same yeah just gotta learn from it that's right yeah. yeah yeah so i think yeah the Back of house is definitely one of the most challenging and also thriving, I guess, components of what makes a good hospitality business. (laughs) Like, for example, Sam, myself, he said he's pretty much near out of the game because he's sick of the back of house (laughs) as an owner's perspective because they've had so many issues confronting one another, you know, whether it's violence, alcohol, whatever it needs to be. I know he's gone through a lot and (laughs) I don't know how he does it still too, but that made me realise and go, nah, I want to be in there, you know, rather than... Rather than being at war with them and saying, you know, why is the product level so high? You know, why is the food cost so high? Why is the wastage so high? Why yep. is it taking 30 minutes for like poached eggs and toast? Rather put yourself into the shoes and say, okay, this is why. Two more questions before we finish off. I yeah. think we've had a really good discussion. <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested to
0: know how you're feeling about the industry right now, like as a greater whole, like opening up and some normality sort of happening with with hospitality venues around the country
1: like how how are you feeling about the industry which obviously you love so much yeah it's it's great that for the first time I'd say actually funnily enough I think it was last week or this week for the first time I spoke to my staff and I said I actually feel a bit normal I'm not fearing lockdowns I'm not fearing that sudden shutting of the doors that uneasiness so that's a really great feeling and I think that's definitely seems to be coming out in a lot of people's um, attitudes and positivity. I think we're becoming more social again. Like, you sure. know, we're learning how to actually talk rather than sitting at home and smashing down a burger, you know, so <laughs> still love. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> yes, But yeah, you're right. It's obviously such a temperamental environment still regardless, you know, mm. even prior to COVID, mm. we already know how hard hospitality is. So it's great to see the ones that have survived come out on top, but it's most upsetting when the places that you love have gone down. So, and it's, Funnily, I think it happened twice already where you're actually like, oh, let's go here and you go there. It's yep. temporarily closed or permanently closed. You're like, it shocks you to the bone where it's gone. Like the name, the sign's actually gone or, or there's something new in there. Actually, that's even, <laughs> even weirder. Even weirder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but that being said, you know, obviously we all, we're we all very aware The CBD is struggling. Um, staffing is, oh God, that's such a big issue. If we can all talk about it, We all know what's going on there. How do we overcome that? A few things I've thought about, but I think the good ones obviously will survive, of yep. course. I think that's something that I even saw down the streets. So for example, walking down Glen for other, I think about a week or two, you know, places are closing quite early now, like eight o'clock, 8.30, which it's really is interesting. Thursday, Thursday mm-hmm. night or even a Saturday night. And then there's one place where it's thriving. So it goes to show there is, there is like opportunity um, as long as you've done the products right and everything like that. Obviously, like overall, (laughs) I'm not too sure what's going to happen to this industry moving forward, whether we are going to go take away more. Is the food quality going to drop? I think it will. Mm -hmm. Um, Will the prices rise? Absolutely. Like inflation's knocking on our door right now. Absolutely. As we spoke last week, I know my seafood went up, which was one of the things I never thought it would, like local seafood, and it has, which was a huge increment to our pricing costs. So now business model is starting to, it's, it's never been quite right for the cafe world. Absolutely. And I think it's just getting worse to the point where, you know, we as customers have to fork out more. We have, you know, wage costs are going up, of course, you know, the demand factor, of course, demand supply, food costs are going up, you know, new online things are all coming in, you know, all mm-hmm. the overheads are going up, like everything is rising, yet the prices are staying the same because of competitiveness. So whilst there are places Obviously unfortunately permanently closing, it's also probably allowing industry to reset, which is I'm really hoping to see, especially the cafe world. So I know your coffee average is what, four dollars, mm. four dollars thirty maybe at the yeah. moment. I think if you really did the proper food costing and a proper business model, it should be close to five, yes. five fifty. The prices keep rising and owners are getting sitting here, like relishing that on the shoulders, going, Well, how do you react to this? Like you know, you cop more and more and more, and this is where you start becoming more stingy in the approach. And then I think that's where we learned. Ah, that's why owners are like this. You know, the costs are rising, the competition is so intense mm-hmm. that we kept that we shot ourselves in the foot absolutely by charging four dollars. We should yep. have gone five, for example. I agree. And it's not being greedy or anything here. It's literally going. If I want to pay my staff properly and award wages, <laughs> weekend wages, surcharges, like. It's only fifty dollars, forty dollars for a staff member, possibly. Yes. How can you make money off a four dollar coffee? To the point where you may as well just close. Um yep. so I think the whole business model itself has to be assessed moving forward, especially with these inflation prices coming in. And sure. that's definitely something I'm a bit worried, I guess, moving forward for the industry. Yeah. I'm
0: not I'm not surprised, but I'm kind of surprised because you are you guys are so good at what you do. That's right, yeah. And and you are destinational and you are really specific about what the brand is Mm. so therefore people should pay for that experience like you're not a vanilla brand Mm. (laughs) you know what i mean like and 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 coffee prices like your normal roasting price has gone up Mm. like milk would have gone up in that time absolutely yes it has you know because the same wage pressure that's now hitting venues as everyone knows they have to pay Mm. staff correctly yep is hitting every other supplier that you're getting product off. Right, yes. So that's why <laughs> that's why it's all increasing at the same time. It really like it's part, yeah. part of the reason anyway. Like I suppose there to be a tipping point on on what a customer is going to pay for like a quality product like yours, right? Are you getting a feeling around what customers are willing to pay, like the upper echelon of what they're willing to pay for like a main dish for brunch? Because obviously a lot of people will spend less mm. on breakfast, brunch and lunch than they will on dinner. It's a lot harder. Yeah. So do you, are you yeah, getting a feeling of what people are sort of paying?
1: That's actually interesting. I, I did actually talk about that with I don't know who it was, but I was like, why is the quality of, I feel, I feel like the brunch scene is actually getting really strong. Mm. Um, at one point it was a bit ridiculous where it was Cafe Every Corner, where yes. everything was a bit eccentric with colours and all of that, which was a bit, I'm glad to kind of see that trend disappear. I agree. With that whole Instagram. <laughs> yes. That was a mess. But I got to say, like the food quality of daytime is, rising to the point of nighttime, you know, yet you're charging a pasta, say $36, $35 when I'm doing my Udon style, which is the exact same concept yep. at a $22 price, you know, mm. it's a huge difference. And whilst I do argue that the quality is the same and they should primarily be the same price theoretically, you know, you're right. The customers aren't willing to, will not willing to spend more. And I, I admit as a customer, I'm probably the same as well, you know. So that's also very interesting, I guess, like a very careful thing to tread on moving forwards because obviously you can't rise your prices too high, you know, mm. like smashed avos where it has a poached egg and all that avocado approach is like averaging 18 to 22. I'd say there's still some cafes doing for $15, like the small yeah. scale ones. So that's also a huge difference, which is really hard to play with. Sandwiches are now what 15 to mm. 18 dollars just mm-hmm. for a sandwich, just for a sandwich, you know? yeah. And but that's because it's a new concept, they can charge that yeah. cafe is such an importance in our culture. And I think we've all really just hovered around these same prices for so long, it's just ingrained in all the customers' perspective that it should be that price, which of course I understand. So I guess whether it's as a collective, we you know, address it and say, mm. guys if you want your kids or if you want your friends or partners to be getting paid correctly, according to what's required in terms of the inflation rate going up, you know, we need to also change our model at the front. But yeah, you're right. Being Hibiki as well, like we are a busy venue and like, you know, we have room to move in terms of like possibly increasing our prices because it's a venue of a name. But then there's still obviously that humbleness of my sense where I'm just like, I'm not here to make money. Yes, you know, I'm not here to increase it ridiculously to the point where it's like, oh my god, you know, let's take the opportunity. It's nothing like that. It's more, you know, stick to what we really like. And I know my portioning sizes are really big in terms of food. I I, ask you about that. Yeah, (laughs) and I I don't, I don't believe in having smaller meals Mm. and increasing the prices. It's, it's more, you know, making sure you married it to very well in value in. And quality and consistency as well. So
0: yeah, I was going to ask you about that because obviously, if you look at sort of three things that the industry can do is either change suppliers, yeah, change portion size, mm. and then obviously increase prices on the back end of that. Of course, like it's quite interesting to see if you look at if you look at retail products, like crisps is a is a yeah. classic example, right? That hasn't really moved in price very much. Like it sort of fluctuates, yeah. but it sits around the same price. Yeah. But what what they've done and confectionery has done is actually changed their portion size. Mm. There you go. So I just wonder if okay if we say the ceiling for a normal breakfast item is twenty four dollars, like that's as much as person will pay. Yeah, because twenty five is like oh, it's quarter of a hundred. Yeah, (laughs) Um, is it changing portion sizes? Yeah, and actually bringing it down. But it's hard to do that if you've got a menu which has been if you've got eight to ten items which are staple items which people love and they come every Saturday for. Absolutely. And then all of a sudden
1: I'm getting slightly less. Yeah, it's huge. It's It's really tough. It is tough. Like (laughs) even like. The salmon has gone up locally yeah. across the board. I don't know for a yeah. fact. Yeah, and now it's like, do we cut that small percentage off? But you know, sure, it's it's so hard because it's so it's so prominent that you can see how much it's gotten smaller. Yes, that's another issue as well. Like, <laughs> of course, it's crossed my mind to make the portioning smaller, um, or even minimizing the menu you mm. know, to a point where it's really small. But then, I guess that defeats the whole original ideology of what hibiki is to bring in all these different um, types of cuisines, um, marrying the two very carefully. Sure. Using Japanese products. So Japanese products as well has gone up. And I think a lot of people don't maybe realise when they come to Hiviki, are using Japanese imported ingredients and sauces. You know, so you got freight costs and all those right. things. And they're stuck in, you know, customs. And they're mm-hmm. like, it's such a mess right now trying to get products in. So um, there's also that component where as much as I do need to increase the prices, possibly because of those increments in the, you know, down the line, you also can't be ridiculous, you know, yes. otherwise you're going to lose your customers. You know, we have a big name of being such a well-proportioned sizes, getting good value out of it as well. And I believe in that because that's still the model that I believe in. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to start cutting costs where I need to, but it, it's starting to really, you know, push us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. i got to say to the point of, you know, we have to do something, I think. Sure. As an industry. I
0: think it's about education across the board, you know, like yeah. we need to, we need to, just talk about it more as a thing. Like
1: customers need to spend more money, of course. And I think I think Melbourne is pretty good at that. To be I honest, agree. like we're getting there. I yeah. mean, the whole, for example, we can surcharge. Like that's mm. remember when that first came out is a bit of like, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> what is fifteen percent more? Fifteen yeah. percent for the same product on a Monday. Yes. And I'm getting the same service on a Sunday. Yes. You know, Well, why should I pay fifteen percent? <laughs> and I'm not gonna lie to so Every now and then, I'll be like, oh, fifteen. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Like even I as an owner. Like I know how important that fifteen percent is in order to cover, you know, wage costs on that day, for example. Exactly. So, but it's getting to a point, like I said, Melbourneans are coming around to it. So it's really good to see where people don't even look at the prices mm. sometimes, which is, I guess, we're very lucky to be in such a, you know, first world country, developed, financially stable, can uh, make those decisions. Speed. that's right. Yeah. So, very thankful that you can also work two and two with that. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. That was. Um, it's just one of the signs that I think there is, there is a chance of moving forward in an education sense and really yep. showing what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely.
0: My well, last question too, cause I've held <laughs> you for a long time. We've no, done it. Right. We've done a long podcast. It's oh, been good. I have no <laughs> idea what time. <laughs> <it is.
1: laughs> what are you looking forward to this year? This year? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the branding sense, as I explained, like going into, um, chili or whatever it needs to be, um, we're actually, um, for example, we've launched, actually speaking today, we've launched sashimi at uh, Future. Oh, wow. Which is really cool. So, something we've been talking about. So, that's another thing we've just done. Music is another cool thing that I kind of mm. want to play on a little bit more. So, I don't know. We've recently started this um, mixtape where each month all the songs that I've kind of liked on Spotify yep. throughout my driving is kind of put into a playlist mixtape that's launched every month. Awesome. To kind of like, we'll play it in the cafe as well, in the kitchen, next door, and also promote it online. People can play it. That's on your on website, own. right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, cool. So, our Spotify has all these genres as well. So, I, I listen to really weird, wacky, wacky, funky <laughs> stuff. <and> <laughs> <laughs> stuff that you would never assume, like ugh, some Turkish music to. Oh, really? Yeah, like 90s, oh, wow. 90s house, like good old 90s house. Yeah, you know, of course. Anything like that. Like really into... It's like really good music, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Um, so that's another aspect I'd love to hear. Well, whether it's DJs as well, kinda mm. go into that for twenty twenty two. Um we're trying to do some more collabs again. So that's something we're trying to push for as well. So we're trying to bring the number boys back in. Mm-hmm. Whether there'll be a proper cross collab that I we could, we could go to a venue. Yeah. I'd actually really love to play with the Japanese venues here and kind of do who knows, maybe like a ima hibiki cross or something. Yeah, yeah, i yeah. pop over there, you know, their chef pops over. I don't know, something like that. It'd be, be really cool. I think so. Well, food as well is another aspect that I obviously, um, as a head chef, love. So right now I've started this new concept called Hibiki Global, mm. um, which actually all happened in the last week because um, I kind of got bored. I was like, we need to do something new. Kind of got bored. <laughs> 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 I remember the chef looking at me going, you, you're crazy. Like, you're going to make me do this, you know? I was like, yeah. Was like, come on, <laughs> let's keep going. Um, so it's pretty much each, I'd say a month maybe, we go to different countries and actually cook. The staples of that food in a Japanese sense. Okay. So it's pretty much like our menu currently, where I've, I've touched in all different continents. I've yes. done Middle East, Mexican, and stuff, really unusual combinations. But so, for example, this month we're doing it, Italian. So we're doing like a calpresse, kind of like a Japanese version of it um, wow. on toast, <laughs> like a breakfast option. God. so we've done like a kombu cured like a snapper as well which i'm currently doing right now okay um we've done like another udon kind of pasta with a pork fennel and and like stracciatella, kind of like real italian approach wow um, we're doing focaccia <laughs> i got more really so i started kacha. making bread <laughs> um i love it which has been pretty fun so we've done like umeboshi which is like the pickled plum like a savory plum and shiso, the herb so we kind of Married that into the focaccia bread, and then like a balsamic of like a plum balsamic. We've got a horchata tiramisu right now in the cool room, ready to go. So, God. so that's just one of the cool aspects. I'm kind of create creativity once again, and also motivate my staff. So motivation is a big thing. So you know, next month might be Indian, for example. We might play with Japanese curry with an Indian twist, I don't know. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I think it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you find that hard as
0: balance with customers who might see a post? On Instagram, from you guys talking about India, uh, talking about Italian food, and then they unfortunately <laughs> yes. don't come at the time, and <laughs> it's still a
1: thing. But do you get? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it's um, <laughs> we we it's been hard because a lot of Japanese people have actually, I actually don't find a lot of Japanese people coming through. Interesting. Enough, which is interesting. Okay. Considering we do, oh, the concept is Japanese. However, yes. I guess I'm I'm a bit eccentric and broaden and a bit. <laughs> bit beyond their comfort zone. Yeah, I understand. Um, where they do actually maybe find it a bit not insulting, but it's a bit too much for them. Yeah, It's to A bit too far. It. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I think it took it too far. Yes. <laughs> However, the locals love it, you know? Yeah. They yeah, yeah. love experimenting. And which is why it is Hibiki global concept I think really works. Because it allows us to if there's something they're familiar with, which is something really important, I think, once again. So you know, for example, Cal Prese salad. Everyone knows it's you know the perfect combination of basil, mm. tomato, and they know what it is. And then they would love to see it in a Japanese sense. So I think it. I think it's a smart approach in terms of creativity. So then we can focus on the one aspect. Um, drinks as well. So front of house is also coming up with drinks, cocktails, yeah. hopefully for night times, and then we've got the playlists on the side which are dedicated for that genre. So we've got like a QR code on the things, you know, dedicated yeah. to Italian hip hop rap music going on right now. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of moving parts. Yes. So, wow. which is, but this is gonna, This is all done because I've got a good team and like. A, yeah. you got flexibility. Like, I've got it. flexibility. Like I've got good chefs in line who are happy to listen, who are happy to also work with me and come up with ideas as well. Like, yeah. I'm so grateful for them um marrying the two together because they've got such good experience in the kitchen whilst i don't really i'm still kind of new to the commercial side of things yeah and then like sashimi for example i've got a sashimi chef on board who who's, who's been there the whole time and she said you know she put a hand up and said why don't we consider this so <laughs> when it gets to that when i start seeing that i'm yeah. just like wow this is you know you're on the right track." yeah like i'm promoting innovative you know and they're they're keen to get involved which is something that's silver lining i think in a lot of businesses yeah i yeah. totally agree <laughs> <laughs> well this has been a really fun conversation reggie yes um <laughs> sorry i talked a bit <laughs> no i love
0: it what's the best way that people can find out about what you're doing with epiki because the thing i love about your website by the way mm. is the fact that it's got movement in it yes. <laughs> and the fact that it's illustrated i love that and the fact that there's music as part of it yes People can le- like, if you're a hospitality owner right now, like jump on their website. Like it's, <laughs> it's just a masterclass <laughs> in how to actually do a proper hospitality website. Yeah. It, correctly.
1: It has to be simple, I guess. Yes. You know, um, and not too minimal. Yeah. And sometimes when it's a bit minimal, it's a bit like, oh, it's cold. You know, you just yeah. want to look at the menu, but this actually makes you want to stay on there. So I agree. So what's the best way that people can find out about, uh, what's like the Instagram handle they can go Definitely to? Definitely. Our Instagram is dot melbourne. um, Instagram, funnily enough, I've done different counts for different locations. Yeah, so right. So that's trying to hit different markets once again. So anything Hibiki related obviously is on that one. It's kind of like the headquarters, you could even call it, where it marries everything together. Future is yeah, cool. called Hibiki Future and then Hibiki Kuro, so Hibiki Kuro. So they all feature their own products. So instead of, you know, making it really busy on one, I've allowed it to be busy on their own terms right. as well. Yeah, obviously to Spotify, which has been a big one. <laughs> so that's just TVK. Melbourne as well, just for familiarity. Got all the um, playlists on there to bang out at home, work, or even your own cafe. I've heard yeah, a few yeah. cafes actually doing our own playlist, which is really? great. Yeah, that's so cool. exciting. <laughs> you should be charging for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah.
0: As always, that is linked up in the show notes of this podcast so you can find everything Habiki related. Reggie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. No, thank you so much. It's an honour. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed that one. As you can probably hear, I loved that conversation. So I hope you really got a lot out of it. Please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends and mates in the industry. We're making this content with the industry, mine. So we really rely on you sharing it along. So please do so if you love it. Thanks as well to our support of the majors, the largest, I should say, family-owned and operated hospitality supply in Australia, Chef's Hat, where the industry shops. And if you don't know us at Post, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design has one of the best design agencies in Australia. You can find him at principledesign.com.au and myself for anything consulting related, Open Pantry Consulting, we analyze and implement the best hospitality systems. You can find us at openpantryconsulting.com. Thanks so much for tuning into to another episode and stay safe everyone, be well. I reckon waiting for the bill in a restaurant at the end of the meal is such a pain. I know, but have you seen Mr. Yum split and pay? I used it the other day at a restaurant, I just scanned the bill and straight away was able to easily split it with friends, pay and leave. It was super fast and super easy. Really sounds amazing. That's right. Mr. Yum split and pay makes it so simple for diners to pay their bill, to split it between a group and even pay for individual items. Restaurants love it as they get to know their customers better than ever, making it simple to send targeted offers and get their guests coming back again and again. It really is a game changer for venues that love full service but want to streamline payments. Mr. Yum's split and pay is the better way to pay and it's free until July 2023. Visit MrYum.com.